Hello and welcome to Matthew Felix On Air, people who create, people who make a difference. Coming to you from Wordspace Studios in San Francisco, California. The show is on hiatus for the summer, so I'm digging into the archives for some great episodes from the recent past that I hope are just as relevant and thought-provoking and entertaining now as they were when they were originally broadcast. On today's show, which aired in June of last year, Anne Devereaux Mills, founder of Parlay House, shares how starting over led her to look at how we, and women in particular, can not only have deeper, more meaningful interactions, but how they can have an inspiring, empowering cascade effect on others. As a single mom, a top executive in New York's competitive advertising scene, and a cancer survivor, Anne experienced challenging times, ultimately leading her to found Parlay House, over 1,000 women who come together to connect, grow, learn, and thrive. Thanks for listening. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe. It really helps, and I really appreciate it. Thanks again, and enjoy the show. Hey, check out my new book, Porcelain Travels. Humor, horror, and revelation in, on, and around toilets, tubs, and showers. A number one bestseller in Amazon's travel humor and literary travel categories, and winner of four Solas Awards, including gold for humor, Publishers Weekly called Porcelain Travels offbeat and funny, and CBS travel editor Peter Greenberg called it a very funny book. You can also check out Porcelain Travels' companion podcast of the same name, which features recorded and live readings of excerpts from the book. Porcelain Travels is available in paperback and ebook on Amazon.com and other online retailers. And Everett Mills spent the first 25 years of her career building and leading advertising agencies in New York City and has been widely recognized as one of the most powerful women in advertising. As if that weren't impressive enough, through it all, she was also a single mother of two daughters and she battled and survived cancer. Anne currently serves as chairwoman of the board of Marchex, one of very few women serving in that capacity, although much of her work is now focused on making a positive social impact. She is a board member and mentor to the founders of Lantern, a San Francisco-based startup that brings mental wellness programs to people through mobile technology. She is a mentor and leader with the She Can Foundation, which gives opportunities to women in post-genocide nations. She was executive director of The Return, an Emmy-nominated documentary about the experience of people returning to society post-prison. And she and her husband were the lead sponsors of California's Proposition 36, which restored fairness in sentencing to the state's excessive three strikes law. Anne also founded Parlay House, a salon-style gathering of over 1,000 Bay Area women who, and now New York women, actually, who, quote, meet to pull each other forward through a combination of shared experiences, meaningful content, and peer-to-peer connections. Welcome, Anne. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Uh, Do you ever sleep? I try, but my Fitbit tells me I'm not doing a very good okay, job. Okay, all right. So I am on to something. There is <laughs> an issue here because I didn't see a lot of room there for sleeping. So my other question is how you fit a thousand women into your house. Well, but we're going to get to that later. Good, good question. We're going to get to that later. Um, so given everything that I just described in your intro, your countless experiences, your varied endeavors, your incredibly impressive achievements, both professionally and beyond the workplace, I'm going to start our conversation uh, with a subject that might seem somewhat unlikely to a lot of our listeners and that's loneliness. And in your forthcoming book, some of which you were kind enough to share with me prior to our discussion today, you talk about your move from New York City to San Francisco and how, despite having a partner when you moved here, you felt very alone. 
So can you tell us a little bit about that period and what you were feeling and why? Absolutely. And something that I hadn't expected to feel because for 25 years I had been super focused on uh, leading companies and had days that began at 4.45 in the morning and ended when I put the kids to bed at night with interaction after interaction after interaction. And I felt that I had a whole lot of friends. And then when I had sort of a pivotal life moment, which caused me to um, sort of lose everything that I was all at once, which was the progression of cancer and uh, my last child leaving the nest to go to college, and then my boss, instead of waiting for me to uh, have my surgery and come back to work, decided to have someone else run the company. I had lost everything all at once. And I thought, okay, well, I still have all of my friends and all the people I've known in my 25-year career. And amazingly enough, there were only about five people who I could routinely count on to check in on me to come visit and were what I would call true friends. And so you go from thousands of you know, supposed friends to very, very, very few who, when there was not something in it for them, weren't there for me anymore. And that was an incredibly lonely feeling. Right. And so you moved to San Francisco. I moved to San Francisco because that's where my uh, boyfriend at the time was living. Right. And, um, you know, sort of when everything else is stripped away, uh, that was one shining bit of life that remained. And I'm originally from Seattle. And so even though uh, moving from uh, New York to San Francisco was kind of an unusual thing, it was at least West Coast familiar. Right. And I didn't know anybody. Right. And I just thought, okay, I'll go there with him. He didn't live here either. So it's not like he had a network. Nope, he was oh, raising his kids okay. in Santa Cruz, and um, Santa Cruz was too big of a leap for me sure. from New York City, so we sort of compromised on San Francisco and started at ground zero. Sure, and so you had this partner, and but you didn't have friends, and you went from being needed, as you just said, by many to feeling needed by almost no one, um, but the term you used in the book to refer to this feeling is dislocation. And um, you refer to a fascinating study that, I, I, like I said, I just thought it was fascinating that some researchers at Simon Fraser University did about the importance of personal connection, which is a theme that's going to underlie our entire conversation today. So can you tell yeah. us just a little bit about that that experiment? There, there are a study. number of super interesting experiments that these, these folks at Simon Fraser have conducted. One of them was really fascinating. They studied... Um, Vietnam veterans and drug addiction among Vietnam veterans. And, you know, heroin use was supposedly very, very high. And uh, they were trying to figure out what was the what was the reason for that sort of addiction. They noticed that a lot of people who were addicted when they were in war came home and did better. And so they started doing studies using cocaine-laced water and mice. And they had these poor little mice in a cage by themselves, and they gave them two options. You can have regular water or you can have water laced with cocaine. And surprise, surprise, the mice chose the cocaine. And then they put a second mouse in this little cage and gave them both the option of you can have water or you can have water laced with cocaine. And when there were two mice together and there was some sort of social interaction, the mice chose the regular water and each other instead of being in a drug-induced state. And I found that an exceptionally amazing insight and one that, you know, they found true to be with vets, too, that vets who had communities to return to no longer needed to rely on drugs to make them feel better, that it was the interaction with other people that they made them feel centered and focused 
again. Right, which is so fascinating again because we're not talking about alcohol or well, I mean, alcohol can be really dangerous as well, but we're not talking about relatively comparatively mild drugs. We're talking about cocaine. We're talking about mind altering to a happier state. Right, right. And and what I've found, you know, not only by reading this research, but in my own rebuilding of my life was the the higher level emotional state comes through real authentic connections with other people. And I don't mean networking because I hate networking. Right. I mean, getting to know someone, look them in the eye, understand what's meaningful to them, what drives them, not who they are based on what they do for a living, but who they are based on their own experience, their own journey, and their own um, sort of needs and strengths and weaknesses and vulnerabilities. And, you know, what that's what makes them so special. Right. And we're going to talk more about that shortly. But let's, um, if I can just touch one more one more angle here on, on this loneliness that you felt when you made your move. Um, because you actually felt it prior to your move to San Francisco as well. And and part of it you felt in the workplace. You felt a certain loneliness. And that resonated a lot because I think that so many of us do. But there are no doubt lots of different reasons for that. But you hone in on one factor in particular, and you sort of alluded to it a moment ago. Uh, but you, you refer to this these these relationships as transactional relationships, as really contributing to that sense of loneliness that you felt in the workplace. So I hadn't actually heard that expression before. What is a transactional relationship? It's funny, you know, I, I was brought up with a bit of religion. I'm not a religious person, uh, but many of us have taken uh, what what is called the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, and turned that into sort of an expectation of reciprocity, an expectation that if I do something for you, then you're going to do something for me, and we're going to go through life kind of in a mob-like way of, you know, I, I, I got your back covered and you got my, my back covered. But what happens very, very often is that there is a breakdown in relationships when the reciprocity isn't returned or isn't returned in the way that's expected. Mm-hmm. And it, it becomes relationships that are based on what I call a transaction, the feeling that if I owe you, you owe me, um, instead of me just doing something for you because it makes your life better in some way. And so I'm sort of on a, a one-woman campaign to break this cycle of transactional relationships and get back to the idea of doing doing something good for the sake of doing something good. Not not superhuman good, just natural day-to-day. I have a strength, I have an ability, I have an insight, I have some way that I could pass something on to you to make your life better and know that that is likely to cascade outwards. And the only thing that I get back is feeling good that I did something that might have been helpful to you and having that be enough. Right. And so when you've just moved to San Francisco... And you're going through this, and these a lot of these thoughts are going through your head. I don't want my next phase. Well, first of all, what do I want my next phase to be? Uh, I know that I don't want it to be characterized largely by these transactional relationships. That's not enough. And you want more along the lines of kind of the things you're saying. But what you talked about, you were longing for something in particular. And so what were you longing for as you started thinking, okay, well, I know I don't want this transactional relationships. How can I get beyond that? And how can I create something different as I move forward? Yeah, it's it's very unusual at 50 years old to be able to go backward and construct based on all of the, the experiences you've had your ideal next phase of life. And I had been one of three sisters growing up. I'd been the mother, single mother of two daughters 
growing up, I'd gone to Wellesley, uh, 2,000 women uh, for four years, and each of those experiences stood out as opportunities for us to have sort of unique relationships with other women that were, again, not transactional, that, and except, you know, there was some fighting between, you know, you wore my shirt yesterday, I'm wearing your shirt today. <laughs> but generally, uh-huh. uh, the, it was about supporting and knowing and tr- truly understanding each other. And I, that was one aha, I would like more of that that came mm-hmm. to me because when you're a CEO and especially a CEO in the world of, of advertising which is still quite mad men surprisingly yeah. uh, in this day and age I did not have a lot of other peers and especially female peers but I was lucky enough to be named a fellow uh, a Henry Crown Fellow at the Aspen Institute which I didn't know that it was such a big deal when I got this um, opportunity but I spent two years going to um, a series of gatherings with 19 other highly accomplished people um, from very different walks of life, a varied political uh, viewpoints. Some were public, some were private, some were American, some were not American. And I found that when the way that we met was, uh, or the way that we got to, together was we'd come having read things in common, whether it was a passage of a book, whether it was poetry, we might share an experience listening to music. And that common experience allowed us to connect on ways that went far beyond what our job title was. It, it allowed us to sort of find something in common, even though superficially you wouldn't think we had a lot in common beyond success, and then to connect on really intimate levels. And even people who you would never think would be able to get vulnerable and be open. When they were in this trusting experience with other people who had shared the same thing, they all of a sudden found comfort. And so putting those two things together uh, is what led me to start um, what I would call, it was before it was named, before it was a thing, it was, I'm going to try to find a few friends of friends and invite them over to my home and share some sort of experience and see if I can recreate that feeling of connection. And the t- Yeah, and that's what I was just going to say. The two things in question that I think we're talking about here is the feeling of connection yep. and then the place that facilitates that feeling. Or were those the two things, the kind of the key? Yes, although I didn't know it was a place at the time. It wasn't that deliberate it was, at the point. It wasn't, point. I, wasn't, um, I wasn't aware of the true meaning that that comes, the true um, um, sort of intimacy that happens when you invite people you don't know or barely know into your home. Usually mm-hmm. we meet in coffee shops or we meet at a club or we meet for, you know, for lunch. But having people who don't know you and you don't know, come into your home, takes um, a level of trust and respect for the quality of other human beings that's a leap. Yeah. And again, it sort of has to be reciprocal in the sense that they're coming into your space and they've got to be respectful of your space. You don't, I mean, again, it's it's kind of going... Yeah, but I don't, you know, again, that gets into sort of the the transaction. I just realized nature. that as soon as I said that. I just realized, oh, no, that's the wrong point well, to make here. Yeah, well, it's yeah. not really the wrong point because that you do have to trust that if you're going to trust people, right. they're going to behave in a way that, and I've really never had, um, you know, of the thousands of members that we have, I've never had anyone behave in a really terrible yeah, way. Yeah, because I was really talking less about transactions and more about mutual respect yep. is really what I was getting yep. to. But, but yeah. So uh, you did. You had this initial meeting. You brought people into your home, and it eventually became called Parlay House. Right. And so, can you tell us a little bit about why, uh, you know, why the name, where the name came from? Well, then, you know, this is the advertising 
woman in me. Yeah, but it's pretty um, good. I, li- well, I like the... Well, uh, so yeah. parlay, if, you're, if you speak French at all, parlay means to speak. Yeah, and we just did. if you think of uh, the gatherings of women sort of way back in the day, they gathered in a parlor, which uh-huh. was another version of a home. And if you're sort of a, you know, boss, modern day woman and are into gambling at all, the idea of a parlay is essentially a stronger play and it may be a riskier play, but a more bigger outcome when we're all in it together. So this idea of a physical place where you'd parlay one thing, I was parlaying one chapter of my life into the next chapter of my life. And all of those meanings seem to resonate. They all work. Yeah. They may be coming from your astute advertising background, but they all legitimately seem to work as yeah. far as I'm concerned. <laughs> so you. you start this new group. Um, but interestingly, you know, and you make this point in the sample chapter that you shared with me, you didn't actually need to create a woman's group because there were lots of women's groups out there. So how did you want Parlay House to be different from the ones that you could have just signed up for and saved yourself a lot of trouble and catering and having people into your home? Yeah, I was really in crisis when I when I created this group because I didn't have solid footing. I had spent so much time defining myself by what I did rather than who I was. And um, that was, a, that was a, um, a very hard time for me. And so, you know, my goal in having people uh, come and gather and just a few people together was, can I find some solid footing with other you know, new friends? Can I create some sort of, and, and I didn't have expectations that the, these would become friends at the level of people who it took me years and years and years to build that intimacy and trust. But I had a sense that if we started connecting, we would find commonalities. And what I didn't realize is all those things that I was feeling when I moved here at one of my lowest personal points, the isolation, the lack of connection, the feeling like I was the only one who was in a really crappy place in, in my life, happened to be the way a lot of other people were feeling too. And the minute you open up some of those truths and you talk about um, the, the parts of you that are hurting, not just the parts that look great on social media, it disarms everyone around you. And all of a sudden you can talk about the real stuff. Right. And you find the commonalities and you find that we're all in this together and that we can support each other and get so much. Exactly. Um, yeah. So tell me about your first meetings then, the early days. So yeah, you have the these people. Days, it was, yeah. it was very random. You know, we had, I had people that I sort of knew whether it was through the Aspen Institute who happened to live in San Francisco or friends of friends that I knew. And, um, you know, I asked my friend Tamsin Smith, she's a, a local poet and artist here in, in San Francisco to read some of her poetry and some poetry that she valued and sort of make poetry a, um, non elitist, uh, uh, experience and really talk to us in unpretentious terms about how to interact with poetry. And, you know, people kind of liked it. And then another friend of mine had a string quartet that was willing to come and, and play. And we had this experience of listening, you know, it was probably four musicians and 20 women. It was not a huge group. So we had this really intimate experience with the musicians and their music. And I'm not a, um, an experienced music person. But I was able to feel something and understand something about their connection to their art that was moving. And it, and it provided a platform for many of us who were not um, music aficionados to connect. Mm-hmm. And as we've grown, I mean, we're now, uh, even the numbers that um, you had are, are old in the sense that we're probably 2,000 okay. in San mm-hmm. Francisco and another 500 in New oh, York. Wow. And um, we create these events every month that are wide ranges of topics. And 
they're always successful. And why are they always successful? Because women opt in. The mm-hmm. whole model is to, to become a member, one woman brings another wo- woman in who she thinks is going to benefit. She takes responsibility for introducing her around. So if you're a shy person who walking into a room of complete strangers feels daunting, you're taken care of and you're seen and you're introduced by another woman who is taking this small action uh, to make you feel more comfortable. Right. And when that happens, you create this cascade outwards of inclusion to more inclusion to more inclusion. And as we included women and as we had a broad range of topics, you get a, an email as a member of ours and it says we're talking about life post-genocide or we're talking about uh, talking with an expert on how to handle the narcissists in your life. <laughs> and you say, oh, that resonates with me. I'm going to go. And I think that would resonate with my friend, and I'm going to bring her as well. And so the great thing is when you self-identify, when you, when you sort of self-opt in, we have great success because you already cared about the topic. Or you wouldn't be there. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so you, you must have to limit then we how many people it. can Absolutely. opt in. Yeah, sure. So you just touched on, you had two rules, and one of them was that um, each member would be brought in, taken care of by another member. We just talked about that, so they wouldn't feel alone, which I think is great. Um, but then the other, you had a second, yeah, you have a second, a second very key important rule, rule yeah. which is nothing is transactional. Yep. And this, this was not something I set out to do, but in the early days, I had a couple of incredible um, members, and they are in very talented women. And it so happened that some of the newer members who didn't really understand what we were trying to accomplish would show up and they'd find out that so-and-so is fantastic at marketing. And she'd say, oh, I'm just launching this incredible um, new school for girls in Africa. And can you do some marketing for me at pro bono to help get me started? Now, if you're going to a safe place where it's finally about you, you know, women are so often at the bottom of the hierarchy in who's getting taken care of. They've got work stuff to take care of. They often have kids. They have a spouse. They have parents. And, you know, they're, they're at the very bottom of self-care. And so we're really trying to be a place where for at least a couple of hours once a month, you're served champagne and you drink, you eat lovely food and you meet really amazing women who are not there to ask anything of you yeah. and you're just allowed to be. And yeah. I think that's a very special gift that we can give each other. Because you distinguish between networking, which you're trying not to do because exactly. it is transactional, and connecting. And um, connecting, which you say is is going deep versus going, I think you said going wide. Is about, Networking is more about going wide versus yep. going networking deep. Networking is how many people can I meet that I might be able to benefit from or they from me sometime in the future. But it's about numbers. Yep. And connecting is about depth. Yep. And I really um, think at the end of our lives, the times we're going to look back on are the times when we really got to know and care about another human being. Yep. Yep. So the meetings are up and running. You're having a lot of success. You're growing by leaps and bounds and you're creating these, these, this, this connectedness and having, again, a lot of success in, in so far as your, your, your mission and what you set out to do and maybe what you didn't even intend to set out to do, but, but are nonetheless accomplishing. And as that's happening though, you do have a bit of a revelation and you discovered that the meetings and facilitating these connections between women had an unexpected, perhaps further reaching effect than you had anticipated. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, it's really fascinating because I I sort of thought that when everyone walked out the door, 
um, that was the end until they came back to the next month. And I started hearing some of these anecdotal stories of things that would happen. I saw small signs at the actual meetings where you'd have two women sitting next to each other, and they both talked about the fact that they revealed to each other that they had ulcerative colitis and how difficult it was to date with a disease mm. that was sometimes embarrassing, and all sure. of a sudden they didn't feel alone anymore. And that was meaningful, obviously, for both of them. Yeah. But then I started hearing stories of... We had one group of women who had been wives of expats living in Hong Kong, and they had sort of felt like their husbands' careers were soaring, and they'd taken, they'd sort of gotten off of their the path, and they um, decided to band together and encourage each other to figure out where she wanted to go and to sort of support her and prod her and make sure that 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 happened. And they came to talk to our um, our women. And a couple of the people in the audience, people I never would have expected to, to have that resonate, um, did. And they left and they said, wow, I feel kind of the same way. I'm ready for a transition in my life. And I wonder how many other women that were there would want to start a group with me where we hold each other accountable. This happened totally outside of Parlay House. I didn't even hear about it for months. Oh, interesting. And um, they since reported back that quite a number of them um, did, got the job, you know, made the life transition, figured stuff out uh, because they had these other women supporting them. It was not just about achievement. It was about finding your new footing and parlaying what you were doing into one other thing. And then there, there's a second example. I had met pretty early on um, a young woman who taught mindfulness in inner city schools. And she, she really impressed me. She was only like 27 years old, and she knew that she was a very calming person who had good training in psychology, and she could help inner-city kids who didn't necessarily have the experience about ways to diffuse anger and stress deal with it. And I did, that just stuck with me. I thought that's a really amazing thing because so many of us feel anger and stress and anxiety and don't really have the tools or the resources for, um, for dealing with it. And I set that aside. And then, um, as, as you mentioned in my um, intro, I'm a mentor for an organization called She Can, which means Shaping Her Education Changes a Nation. And it's this really cool San Francisco-based but now national startup that finds these women who uh, sur families survive genocide and the country is now a little bit um, leaderless and women are quite secondary and uh, this organization is helping take already sort of superstar young women and help them get into universities in the United States, get great um, training and degrees and education and leadership skills so that they can go back and become the next generation of leaders in their countries. That's and they're fantastic. super impressive. So I had made the decision to sponsor one of these young women and uh, along with four other mentors, and we each had different jobs. And part of my job was helping her do well on her exams and decide which schools to go to. And she had decided on some really top-level schools, and it made complete sense because mm -hmm. she was a, a straight-A student and high on the national exam. But she had to take t the TOEFL exam, which is English as a second language. Right. And, you know, not very many people take that exam in Cambodia. It was very poorly proctored. It was highly stressed. The timing was off. I mean, everyone here knows how stressful it is to take SATs or something like that. Sure. This was on steroids because it was in another <laughs> language, and it was, you know, not something you'd been trained to do. And she did okay, but she didn't do well enough to get into the level of school she was capable of doing. And she told me it was because she was just stressed out. So I'm just talking to her on the phone, and she's like, I'm so stressed, I cannot even 
get past this. And all of a sudden, Hannah, this woman that I'd met that teaches mindfulness in inter inner city schools, sprung into my head. And I called her. I said, Hannah, I have no idea whether this will work or not, but she's got to take this exam again next weekend. Do you think you can call her and just teach her a basic thing or two about what you teach these other kids um, in terms of mindfulness and calming yourself down? Sure. And Hannah was lovely and did. And, of course, you know, fast forward uh, – on this story, um, that student from Cambodia is now entering her junior year at Scripps College. She's doing London School of Economics junior year abroad. Wow. And she's a superstar. And yeah. it's because one young woman took the skills that she naturally had and took a little bit of time, probably 15 minutes, 30 minutes of a phone call, and gave it to a complete stranger without right. expecting anything coming back to her. Right. So that's what I'm, that's, that's this ripple effect outward right. that I talk about. And it's having an impact. I mean, what we're really talking about here is having an impact because it seems to me that that's what Parlay House and most everything you do is, is really all about, is having, how can we have these impacts, these positive impacts on others? And a quote near the end of your speaking reel encapsulated for me a lot of the ideas about having an impact that you've just been touching on and, and that I saw on your site and when I was doing the research for today. And I just really liked this quote, quote, I'm going to leave to you that you have a whole level of power that you might not even have thought you had in the tiny things, that you don't even know the cascade of meaning and good that will happen as a result of something you choose to do by living that conscious, small action life. So there are two things there, two themes that I saw recurring in, in, your, in, your, in the work that you do. One is this idea, let's start with this small action life and the tiny things, because I think it is sometimes we don't necessarily move. We want to make a change. We want to help. And we just, it feels daunting because it feels so big. And so what you keep bringing this back to a lot here is this idea that it doesn't have, that's not how it has to work. Yeah, I actually think it's too overwhelming when you, and I'm speaking from a woman's point of view right now, when you think of all of the negative turn of events that have, are happening currently in our country, you know, we have less control and access uh, on our reproductive rights, you know, especially in southern states, but everywhere. We keep hitting a glass ceiling even though our contributions continue to be outstanding. You know, I'm, I'm chairman of the board of a public company, one of very, very, very few women that has been given an opportunity to do that. And when you start thinking about the size of some of these problems, you think, I'm just one person. And in fact, I'm one person who doesn't necessarily have access to a lot of means or to a lot of people. What do I do when I don't have that, that access? Well, I'm here to sort of talk about small actions having superb um, impact, much more than you ever could imagine, and to encourage people that those small actions are very likely creating those ripple effects that you might never know that happen, happen. Right. And so I'll give you uh, one very interesting example. When I first moved to uh, San Francisco, my husband and I started working on the referendum you mentioned, Prop 36, which changed the three strikes law in California to um, be much more fair to people who were incarcerated on a very minor felony the third time and sentenced, sentenced to life. And um, when I started working on that, um, we had this ter terrific sort of consultant who was helping us on the project, and I met his wife. And she had started an organization 
to try to stop bullying in mm -hmm. elementary schools. She had some personal experiences with bullying and found how incredibly detrimental it was and that you know kids, e even something that would be, see be seemingly as small as not including someone else to sit with you at lunch had really significant impact on the children. Sure. And, and that just stuck with me. And then um, not too long after that, I was walking down Chestnut Street in San Francisco and saw in the, the window of a store um, a t-shirt that said, no, you can't sit at our table. Mm. And I joked to my daughter who was with me at the time, and I said, well, that's not very nice. And she said, Mom, it's from Mean Girls. Everyone knows oh. what it is. I wouldn't but, have known either. Well, I wouldn't <laughs> have known. And, and yeah. I, I called this woman that I'd met who'd started the bullying thing, and I said, you know, by the way, I just want you to know that, um, that what, what you're doing stuck with me, and there's this T-shirt in the window of a well-known chain, and you should just know about that. And I never thought anything of it. Small and action, relatively small speaking. Small action mm -hmm. five years ago. Didn't think anything of it. She said, oh, thanks. We'll look into it. And I didn't hear back. And she recently dropped me a note. And she said, you know, Anne, when you told me about that, we, we went and looked. We saw you were right. We brought all of our people. We staged a protest. Oh, wow. And it got picked up on national TV. Wow. And while it didn't get to be, you know, a huge movement, what it did was tell us that what we were doing was meaningful and mattered. And it was sort of the thing that ignited our... Um, our passion and our success in creating this organization called Beyond Differences that now has grown to be quite a formidable organization. Wow. All I did was tell her about a t-shirt. Right. But when you're doing something where you're thinking of the other person at a level of something meaningful for them, it's going to translate into far bigger impact. And that wasn't money. That wasn't time. That was something anybody can do is be thoughtful of what matters to someone else and help let them know. And take it. the little action. Yep. That little action. Um, and, and that really touches on, again, this notion of the cascading effect that you just, you just have no idea. Something else you said in your speaking reel about how to foment positive change. Um, this was specifically in the context, again, of people who know that change is needed, but might not know how to get started. You said, quote, find the place where your passion, the thing you really care about, meets your prowess, your natural ability. And I loved that. Um, can you tell us a little more, a little more about what you meant by that? Yeah, I think it's very hard for people to figure out um, how to start doing something meaningful. And I always think that when something is easy for you, it doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. It means it's probably going to allow you to go a lot farther. So if you have some natural abilities, um, which I call your prowess, the things that you just do well without even thinking about it. I tend to have really good 30,000-foot understanding of a situation. So um, I'm someone who, who can listen to what's going on and immediately sort of get the dynamics. And it comes supernaturally to me. And so be, by knowing that that's my prowess, I can put myself in situations where I help people get to clarity. It's probably why I mentor a lot and why I help a lot of um, sort of leaders figure out uh, ways to make their businesses more successful. And it's because I have that natural ability. And then I apply it to things that I care about. So just because I can do it doesn't mean I want to do it. And when there's something you're really interested in, to me it's the development of women, it's fights for social justice, it's, it's um, things that hit my heart where there are inequities that we need to address and that our society is not naturally doing them. That's what gets me riled up. So mm -hmm. if I can overlay what I naturally do well with what I naturally care about, I tend to do a lot better. And I think everybody has an intersection of things they care about and things they do well. 
I have this uh, friend, uh, her name is Nancy Lublin. She, she runs an organization which she founded called Crisis Text Line. And Nancy is kind of a feisty boss lady who uh, does, she, when, when I said to her, you know, find the intersection of your passion and prowess, and she said, passion, that's bullshit. You should find out things that piss you off and do something about those. Hmm. Well, it's another spin sure. on something that gets your blood flowing, something right. that you really care about. So I don't think you have to be all airy-fairy and, you know, light and think about what makes you feel great. Think about what moves you, what drives you, what would you love to see changed, and what pisses you off. Yeah. And, and apply your skills to that. Yeah. Another element that you emphasize as important for having an impact is choosing the right collaborators. And uh, you go one step further and you suggest that before people engage with others as potential collaborators, they might want to consider the types of relationships that these potential collaborators generally have with others. So can you talk a little bit about there are three different types that um, I believe Wharton Professor Adam Grant touched on? Yeah, he, you know, he talks about... Um sort of his his book is give and take at least the one that i'm referring to here and he talks a lot about um sort of the dangerous nature of takers where everything is extractive um and there you might know those people they're pretty uh common you know they they always ask you to drive their kid to school and never reciprocate or they they go out to lunch with you all the time and strangely enough you always end up picking up the tab and you know you can sort of sense that pattern and and those are are tough folks um, and then there are um, givers which are which are people who are n kind of in this non-transactional way not looking for anything back but they're willing to give and and those people are fantastic they can be and and I probably f sometimes fall into that camp I'm um, taken advantage of because if you're someone who always says yes you'll find the people who are always going to take your yes sure. and so figuring out a very nice balance between between those things is is crucial yep um you also cited a study, again, by the Simon Fraser University. Like you said, they, they're doing a lot of interesting work about the act of giving, which I thought was interesting. Um, do, you, do you remember the study I'm referring uh, is to? Is this the one about the kids? About the kids. Yeah. So yeah. This, this is a pretty uh, fascinating study. Um, the, the, the school was trying to figure out, the researchers were trying to figure out um, what makes people happiest to give. And they had very, very, very young children that they were studying. And they gave these young they gave these young children a little doll. I think it was a monkey, a little pet monkey. And they said, "Wow, this monkey loves sweets. This monkey loves candy and you know cookies and makes them so happy." And then they brought candy and cookies into the room. Sure. And you know you're a you're a little kid. You all of a sudden have this room full of candy and cookies. What are you going to do? You're going to eat them. But these kids knew that their monkey was happier by having the sweets, and so they spent the entire time in their room where they were being observed, feeding the, the sweets not to themselves, but to someone else. And, yep. and, and it speaks to this incredible satisfaction we get when we know something makes someone else happy, and we choose to do the thing that supports their happiness rather than our own. Yeah, and, and specifically from a scientific perspective, what we're saying here is that, quote, and I'm quoting you, I believe, the act of giving, especially when it was giving away something special, generated greater feelings of pleasure than yeah. receiving. Yeah. So even physiologically, it's not oh, even absolutely. just, yeah, yeah, which I just found fascinating and, and loved. 
Um, so let's jump back here in our final few minutes. I'd like to jump back to kind of your main initiative right now, or I think it's your main initiative. You have so many things going on. I don't know if you would call it your main one, but kind of where you are fomenting this connectedness and, and having an impact, with, which again is the Parlay House. Can you tell us, because we talked about sort of the early days, um, but can you talk about some of the more recent things that you guys have touched on? Yeah, absolutely. So the first thing that, that became clear is that this is not um, a San Francisco-only opportunity. And I, we have a lot of members who either moved here from the East Coast or by coastal or in, you know, live in multiple places, and, and they were constantly sort of saying, well, when are you going to start here or there? So we, we've been lucky enough to launch in New York, just uh, six months old, mm -hmm. but having um, significant impact and, and growth in New York. And the other interesting thing that's happened is people hear about what we're doing and reach out to me and say, I'd like to start one. My somewhere. own I'd sort like of version. I'd like to start my own. Yeah. And, you know, because we're not a, either a nonprofit or a for-profit, we're sort of a, a, you know, because this is the right thing to do, well, I don't even know what category uh, that is. Sure. I spend a lot of time trying to talk to people about what it will take and how they can most effectively um, begin parlay house type of activities uh, on, on, on their, their own. own, yeah. Because you don't have to serve champagne, and you don't have to have sort of famous people talking in order for it to be a meaningful experience. In fact, you can do it with potluck and someone who's willing to share openly something that they've never talked about, even if you've all known her many times before. Yeah. There's a there's a lot that can happen um, where you don't need the means and resources to do it, and it's creating um, connected communities of people who all, all of a sudden feel far more empowered as part of this connected group and 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 also pe women who feel seen and heard for the first time in a long time That's i think we, so much what it's so about so many of us spend so much time feeling invisible and not feeling seen or heard for who we are what we need what we care about um, and so I think this is creating really a national and even um, international opportunity um, to create supportive networks that are about the things that uh, really move us. Yeah, no doubt. So how do you just from an organization, so staying with Parlay House versus these sort of spinoffs, yep. we'll, we'll call them. Yep. How do you maintain that sense of intimacy and connectedness uh, that's so essential to your mission as you're expanding not only in numbers, but also geographically? How do you yeah. maintain? Well, the first thing I do is make sure that the person who is talking resonates with me. Uh -huh. you know, would I personally go? Is this something that, and it's a wide range because we, you know, we have, um, I think one of the, the indicators of success is to have the most diverse possible group of members in the very early stages. Mm -hmm. So if you have young and old, if you have a range of ethnicities and sexual orientation and, you know, we've got, I, I think we have uh, grad school students up to retired people working moms, not working moms, it's sort of a total range. And yeah. that diversity means those people are going to tend to bring people like themselves. And so you start off with a diverse membership base. All of a sudden, you have a lot of people with a lot of interests. Um, and it doesn't look like you're talking to people who look and sound and have experience just like you. And just that's like, that's you. like yeah. one of the crucial things that we focus on. Um, and then, you know, the, the, the next thing is, are our speakers willing to be vulnerable? It's mm -hmm. easy to be a successful person and to come in and talk about what made you a successful person. But it's much harder to talk about what almost derailed you from mm -hmm. accomplishing what you were, were going to accomplish. And, yep. you know, we have had the widest range of people who talk about where they 
failed or almost failed and have been incredibly moving in their willingness to go there. And mm -hmm. so some of it is not just the, the content, but it's the willingness to be vulnerable and be human, even when you're on a stage, which being on a stage or on a, you know, on the hot seat, the person speaking often sort of elevates you above everyone else yes. in a traditional way. And what we really try to do is make it be a completely um, symbiotic, equal process that the truth of the speaker is the truth of the people in the room and yep. it evens the playing field and makes us all feel accessible. And is there a lot of exchange then afterwards after tons? Yeah. Tons. Yeah. So yeah. I made, a, I made a crucial error when I launched in New York, um, in that I, I sense, I try to read the audience and I sensed people were getting restless. Part of them were getting restless because I had too many people in a small room. It was okay. pretty packed. It was yep. very popular yep. and people were starting to squirm around. And I saw that as a sign of, okay, we had a great speaker. We better, Wrap it Wrap up. Wrap it up. And afterwards, I had people, New Yorkers are, you know, they tell you what's on their mind. So they came up and said, yeah, that was great, but I'm pissed that I didn't get to ask a question. Right, and right. I really found that that exchange, the Q&A part, is as or more important than what the person is talking about in the first time. Because that's how the, the actual connection is taking place, right? Exactly. Right, or at least on that deeper level. It, it, right. It yeah. allows you to really dig in. Yeah. Yeah. Any plans to go beyond New York at this point or you're just focused on New York at this yeah, right now? I've had a lot of interest in places like L.A., Vancouver, Seattle, Washington, Boston. But each time <laughs> you're launching other that, it's a bit. Yeah. Each yeah. time you're launching one of those places, it's a pretty big commitment. If you think about the organization that it takes to let everyone know what's happening, make oh, sure. sure people have responded, get the right speaker that is going to move people and be able to really speak intimately, um, you know, provide some good food and you know maybe a little champagne a little champagne uh -huh. and so you know it, I'm, I'm trying to do it thoughtfully but i really and, and i'm looking for other women i can't do it alone sure right? in each sure. city i have at least one if not more women who are sort of my partners in crime and making this happen because it's much stronger when you do it together and and you know that's the whole spirit of it and, right exactly yeah and so we, i got to find more of those partners and what about in so so say for example just in san francisco since that's where you've started what happens when it's great that you've got 2000 people, but again, you have to limit the number because yep. the, the spaces. So how do you kind of manage that? I mean, it would at some point, would you have to have maybe two parlay houses yeah, in San Francisco? I mean, we've been lucky or? enough to have members who have hosted in Oakland in Silicon Valley and Marin. And, you know, we'll try to keep doing that as long as we can, um, you know, get, keep the quality yeah. where it is and yeah. keep the intimacy where it is, yeah. I would love to see multiple chapters. But, yeah. you know, it's also so um, meaningful to people that we have members who are driving from Sacramento or from Santa Cruz. Sure, or, making know, the effort. In New York, we have people driving from Philadelphia. Because oh, wow. when else can you go and sit in a room with women and have it be about us and have it be um, moving and meaningful and, you know, make make each of us a priority for an evening it, it it's worth the drive you have struck a chord yeah. uh quickly i don't know so i did mention that you're working on a book is there anything you want to say about that at this point or it's still in process so maybe not really worth going any further well, with that i want to give you a chance it's in process yeah I, you know i need to find the right editor uh and i'm you know honing in but i but he or she has not emerged and so i'm um, you know it's 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 a book that's uh i think resonates part of it is my own uh 
vulnerability in, in telling my life story that's probably a third of what it took to be come out of a an abusive relationship, to be a single mom commuting long distances and raising two daughters on your own and rising to the top of a pretty male career. There's some compelling stuff. There are some stuff. compelling stories there, um, yes. And, and, you know, the next third are these stories that I talked to you about, uh, like my Cambodian scholar and how she was helped by the other young woman. These are stories of small actioned things that can be replicated and then of course the third piece is the is the prescriptive if i want to do that how do i start right and really trying to coach people in figuring out how do i identify that intersection of passion and prowess and how do they start trial balloons to see mm -hmm. what really resonates because you can't go from never having done anything to running an organization you got to try stuff out and see how it how it fits you and learn from it, your mistakes it feels right and, right mm -hmm. Well, as I told you before we went on air, I mean, I loved, I loved the uh, the sample chapter that you shared, and I don't yeah. know that I also told her off air that I don't know if she even needs an editor because I said, please tell me that this book has already been edited because it is so well written, and she claims she hasn't, and she seems pretty honest, so <laughs> she's putting all of the rest of us to shame. No. Uh, and thank you for being here. Let me throw out your links here for your uh, your two uh, websites here: parleyhouse.com. That's pretty easy. As is the other one, and Devereaux Mills. Am I saying Devereaux? Is that how You're you pronounce Devereaux, it? Okay, correct. and Devereaux. Mills. Uh, if you speak French, you can spell that. Otherwise, I'll spell it really quickly. D-E-V-E-R-E-U-X Mills.com. And of course, that's on my website as well. And thank you very much for being here today. Thanks. This has been super fun. I loved having you here. Thank and you I can't know. for I can't wait to uh, to actually see the final the final product of the book. Thanks. I look so, forward to sharing it with you. Thanks.